welcome to the June edition of Pharma Intelligence's podcast. In this month's podcast, we'll be highlighting and discussing some key results presented at ASCO 2022. First off, I'd like to introduce myself, Ellie, and the rest of Data Monitor's oncology team, Dana. Hello. Millie. Hi. Flora. Hello. And David. Hi, everybody. So I'm going to kick off our discussion today by highlighting some results released in a late-breaking abstract from the monotherapy arm of the Phase 3 Athena trial. So Athena is a multi-arm study investigating both rubraca monotherapy and rubraca in combination with Obdivo for the frontline maintenance setting in patients with newly diagnosed ovarian cancer following response to platinum-based chemotherapy. Clovis Oncology's rubraca's uptake has lagged behind other PARP inhibitors in the ovarian cancer market, as unlike its competitors, its approval has limited it to the recurrent setting only. Rubraca has received approvals for the maintenance treatment of recurrent platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer patients and as a third-line or later treatment for BRCA-mutated patients. And despite being one of the first PARP inhibitors approved, Rubraca has faced recent declining sales. So by initiating the Athena trial, Clovis hopes an approval in the frontline maintenance setting will expand Rubraca's available patient population, as the frontline setting has a much larger patient population, competitors Limpaza and Zajula have had access to for years, although Limpaza's initial approval was for BRCA mutated patients only. But this was changed in 2020 to all patients regardless of mutational status, and Zajula received a frontline approval for all patients in 2017. So although it's initiating much later, the, the Athena trial investigating Rubraca as a monotherapy in Athena Mono and as a combination with Obdivo in Athena Combo may expand Rubraca's commercial potential. However, given that its competitors are well established in the setting, it will probably be a tough task to compete with them. The data released at ASCO for the Athena Mono part of the trial were positive and the trial met its primary endpoint of progression-free survival. Here, Rubraca showed a 48% reduction in the risk of disease progression with a median PFS of 20.2 months compared with 9.2 months for placebo patients. I would say this data is relatively in line with the data released from the two phase two trials, Prima and Paola 1, that resulted in approvals for Zajula and Limpaza for all newly diagnosed patients, regardless of mutation. So based on these positive results from the monotherapy arm, Clovis initially said it was planning on filing for an approval in the US in June 2022. However, it seems as though Rubraca has a rocky road ahead. Just last week, Clovis voluntarily withdrew Rubraca's indication for the treatment of third-line BRCA-mutated ovarian cancer after an overall survival analysis from its confirmatory Phase 3 aerial full trial showed more of a survival benefit in patients with the chemotherapy arm of the trial than in the Rubraca arm. This came as quite a surprise as primary results released from Aerial 4 last year actually showed Rebecca met its primary endpoint of progression-free survival. The main issue with the withdrawal is that although the third line indication was not a major one for Rebecca, the negative overall survival signal may potentially derail the company's bid for an approval as a first line maintenance treatment and the knock-on effect has already become. Clovis was hit with further disappointment when in a consultation with the FDA, the company was advised not to file a supplemental approval for the frontline setting until the overall survival data reached at least 50% majority, whereas competitors Limpaza and Sajula were both approved on PFS data alone. This is especially a blow when you consider the combination arm with Obdivo is most likely Rubraca's best chance of success and the frontline setting contains no approved PARP inhibitor and immunotherapy combinations to date. It's also been hypothesised from preclinical studies that combining targeted therapies such as PARP inhibitors and PD-1 immunotherapy 
may result in mechanistic synergy. However, the survival data for Athena Mono, which is actually ahead of the Athena Combo part of the trial, is currently only 25% mature and Clovis expects it to take another two years approximately for the survival data to reach maturity. The FDA also indicated an advisory committee review would likely be necessary if the data were filed earlier than at that point. The issue is both Zajula and Limpaza are also in development with PD-1 inhibitors for the frontline setting. Limpaza is being paired with Keytruda and Zajula with Gimperli in the Keylink 001 and first trials respectively. These delayed timelines are a big hit to Clovis's already struggling PARP inhibitor, as both the trials just mentioned are expected to reach their primary completion date in 2023, which is before that of Athena's in 2024. And although the data for Athena Mono are positive, physician and patient familiarity with Limpaza and Zajula will likely see it struggle to compete, and these delayed timeframes will only exacerbate and ensure the immunotherapy combination also lags behind. Now, moving on to breast cancer, Two of the late-breaking abstracts were about antibody drug conjugates in the HER2 negative or low breast cancer. Millie, can you discuss your thoughts on the future landscape of ADCs in HER2 low slash negative breast cancer? Yeah, so in TMBC, the antibody drug conjugates Tridelvi and Unher2 are forecast to gain a significant share of the pre-treated advanced or metastatic TMBC market. Tridelvi was the first ADC approved for TMBC and has dominated within the third line therapy market since and has already captured over a third of the market within a year of its launch. And HER2 is expected to be approved as a second or third line therapy for advanced or refractory metastatic HER2 low breast cancer based on the impressive phase three destiny breast 04 study results. And although it will face competition from already approved therapies and other pipeline drugs, and HER2 is expected to capture a decent share of the HER2 low second line TMBC market. And it is expected to overtake Tridelvi in sales due to its impressive efficacy shown in pre-treated HER2 low patients. And then in HR positive and HER2 negative breast cancer, Tridelvi and UnHER2 are expected to have a similar stronghold on the later line metastatic market, although neither are yet approved for this indication. As you mentioned, UnHER2 demonstrated a practice changing benefit in HER2 low breast cancer patients at ASCO. How do you see this changing the treatment paradigm in both triple negative breast cancer and um, HR positive breast cancer? Yeah, so like you said, these data will undoubtedly lead um, in HER2 to be the first agent approved for the HER2 low setting, which spans across the TMBC setting and HR positive HER2 negative breast cancer. So there is currently no targeted therapeutic approved across all three subtypes of breast cancer, but after the Destiny Breast 04 data was presented, and HER2 is probably going to be the first. And there are also no HER2 targeted agents currently approved for TMBC or HR positive HER2 negative breast cancer, which again is positioning in HER2 to be a pioneer in these settings. Um, Tridelvi is approved for third line and beyond TMBC and is currently being investigated in the phase two Tropics O2 trial for third line and beyond HR positive HER2 negative breast cancer. It has previously established strong efficacy in late line TMBC patients and is currently a standard of care in heavily pretreated metastatic TMBC patients. However, the data from the Destiny Breast 04 trial demonstrated a superior OS and PFS for TMBC patients, which will likely result in an FDA approval and allowing her to, to overtake Tridelvi in later line metastatic TMBC. And then looking at HR positive HER2 negative breast cancer, 
Tridelvi demonstrated moderate efficacy in uh, the phase three Tropics O2 trial presented at ASCO 2022, but HER2 had a higher PFS in the same patient population. As the later line metastatic setting is a, an area of high unmet need, um, with the majority of patients being treated with older, less efficacious targeted therapies such as Infinitor or chemotherapies, both HER2 and Tridelvi are likely to gain FDA approval in um, HR-positive HER2-negative breast cancer. But nevertheless, based on the data from the Destiny Breast 04 trial, HER2 will probably be the leader of the market in this patient segment. Only 58 patients were included in the triple-negative breast cancer cohort in Destiny Breast 04. Do you feel this data may still warrant an approval for triple-negative breast cancer? Yeah, so this is a good question. Only a very small percentage of the trial participants um, had TMBC, which is notoriously harder to treat than HR-positive HER2-negative breast cancer. So although HER2-treated patients with HER2-low TMBC reached a median PFS of 8.5 months compared to 2.9 months in the comparator arm, there has been some question of if this efficacy will be reproducible in a larger trial of HER2-low um, TMBC patients. So I think that the strong OS benefit of 18.2 months shown in the inher 2 treated population versus 8.3 months of the chemotherapy um, arm will still justify an approval. It's an OS improvement of just under 10 months, which is remarkable even in a smaller population. But that being said, the FDA may ask that a larger confirmatory trial for TMBC patients be conducted to verify Inherti's benefit in this indication and grant accelerated approval rather than full approval for this reason. But the efficacy benefit is so positive that they still may overlook this and grant full approval regardless. Trodovi demonstrated a 1.5 month PFS increase over chemotherapy in pre-treated metastatic HER2 negative HR positive patients in the phase 3 Tropics O2 trial. While statistically significant, do you think this increase is clinically significant? Yeah, so this question was asked by a member of the audience at ASCO and it seems there is some general controversy around these results. So it is important to remember that this trial was looking at heavily pretreated patients, with the majority of patients having received two or three lines of prior therapy in the metastatic setting before. So the lead investigator in this trial, Dr. Rugo, said it is difficult to measure clinical significance in such heavily pretreated patients. And she stated a clinically meaningful reduction in the risk of disease progression or death in these patients with limited treatment options is still remarkable. So I do partially agree with this, with patients running out of options as they progress, almost any benefit in efficacy is positive. So this still may be seen as clinically significant. However, a major problem is the relatively small increase in efficacy over chemotherapy was paired with a less favourable tolerability profile. So 14% more of Tridelvi treated patients experienced a grade three or above adverse event compared to chemotherapy treated patients. And I'm not sure that the 1.5 month increase in PFS justifies this decrease in safety. So the actual PFS Tridelvi demonstrated in this trial was 5.5 months. And in comparison, Affinitor, which is already approved in a later line metastatic HR positive HER2 negative breast cancer setting, demonstrated a 7.8 month PFS um, in pretreated patients. However, it should be highlighted that Affinitor's data was gained from a trial investigating patients with only one to two prior lines of treatment. Um, and a similar result may not have been produced if later line patients were included. 
So the difference in the patient populations does make it difficult to draw an accurate comparison between the two agents, but afinitum may be preferred in practice due to the higher PFS it has shown. And then just coming back to NHER2, the majority of patients investigated in the Destiny Breast 04 trial were HR positive, and these HR positive patients um, reached a PFS of 10.1 months. So this will probably lead NHER2 to being um, the ADC of choice in the pretreated metastatic setting for this indication over Tradalvi. So yeah, overall Tradalvi will probably still gain approval despite the relatively small benefit just because this setting is one with a very high area of unmet need. But uptake will probably not be particularly high due to the several superior competitors. David, can you now discuss the results for glofitumab for third line or later DLBCL? Sure. So uh, SHINE is a pivotal single arm trial evaluating glofitumab uh, for third line or later DLBCL. Roche's glofitumab is a bispecific antibody that targets CD20 on the tumor cell and CD3 on T cells, thus activating the T cells in close proximity to the tumor cells. In SHINE, patients were pretreated with a single dose of Gaziva to help debulk the tumor, and then received step-up dosing with two doses of glufidumab in cycle one, and then a single full dose every three weeks starting at cycle two. Glufidumab was given for a fixed duration of 12 21-day cycles. Uh, the primary endpoint for this trial was complete response or CR, and the trial was designed to beat the historical CR rate in the setting, which is 20%. There were actually two CR rates presented. The first rate was for the primary analysis and included 108 patients in the dose expansion arm, and that CR rate was 35%. The second CR rate presented was for all 155 patients treated with the recommended phase two dose, and so it included the dose expansion arm as well as patients in the dose escalation arm. This second CR rate was higher at 39%, and um, that is the one they focused on. Yeah, they, uh, they highlighted the higher rate and presented the lower rate in a, in a smaller font. Um, I think most people will accept the 39% uh, CR rate, but it will be interesting to see how the label handles it if approved. Uh, most likely, the label will report uh, both rates. Um, all further analysis um, at ASCO was for that larger group of uh, patients. So with the median follow-up of 12.6 months, uh, median progression-free survival was 4.9 months, while median overall survival was 11.5 months. Encouragingly, 37% of patients were progression-free at 12 months. It will be interesting to see how this holds up with longer follow-up. The median duration of complete response was not reached, but 78% of complete responders remained in, in, in CR at 12 months. A key pre-specified subgroup was the 34% of patients with prior CAR-T therapy. These patients had a CR rate of 35%, which is similar to the 42% CR rate seen in patients with no prior CAR-T therapy. So that is very encouraging as uh, CAR-T therapy is expected to become the standard care for second-line high-risk transplant-eligible patients. So a lot of the patients will have been pretreated with, with CAR-T. With regards to safety, 63% uh, of patients had cytokine release syndrome or CRS, with 3.9% of patients having a grade 3 or higher event. Neurological toxicity was seen in 7.8% of patients, with 2.6% of patients having a grade 3 or higher event. Um, finally, infection was seen in 38% of patients, with 15% of patients having a grade 3 or higher event. Um, based on these positive results, we expect Roche to submit for accelerated approval of glucidumab for DLBCL. Are there any other bispecific antibodies in late phase development for DLBCL? Um, yeah, so there's uh, four of them. Um, Genmab and Avi are developing epcoritamab, while Regeneron is uh, developing odronextamab. Glofidumab is differentiated by having uh, bivalency for CD20, which was designed to give it high avidity. 
However, it also makes it larger, which is why it has to be given intravenously. Roche is also developing a subcutaneous formulation of Lunsumio for DLBCL, but that is for an earlier line of therapy. Lunsumio is also known as Mosunotuzumab and was recently approved in the EU for follicular lymphoma. Epcaritamab is a subcutaneous formulation, um, while an intravenous formulation of odronexinimab is being tested in its uh, pivotal phase two trial. A, a subcutaneous formulation of odronexinimab is in development. All four bispecifics target CD20 and CD3. Glofidumab and epcaritamab are the first report pivotal trial data, and so they are now the front runners with both expecting to submit regulatory submissions this year. Um, Regeneron is expecting pivotal data for odronexinimab later this year. I should mention that apart from the difference in IV versus subcutaneous formulation, the glufidumab trial evaluated fixed-dose treatment, um, while the opcaritumab trial was given until disease progression or discontinuation due to toxicity. In terms of how the results, uh, the respective pivotal trial results compare, they both reported similar efficacy with CR rates of 39%. Um, they had similar duration of responses with epcaritamab, maybe having a little bit of an edge, um, but we should wait for the 24-month data to see if uh, glofidumab takes a hit from its uh, fixed treatment duration of about nine months. With regards to safety, epcaritamab also has an edge with slightly lower rates of CRS and neurotoxicity. Um, the biggest difference was a much lower rate of infections, which was 38% for glofidumab and less than 15% for epcaritamab. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how uh, if those infections rise um, with longer treatment duration for epcaritamab. Um, so in summary, Roche was hoping that glofidumab would have greater efficacy and safety, uh, which would make up for its intravenous formulation. But without those advantages, I think uh, physicians and patients will prefer epcaritamab's more convenient subcutaneous formulation. Are the bispecifics also being developed in earlier settings? Yeah, so uh, confirmatory phase three trials have initiated for the two Roche bispecifics um, and for epcaritamab. All three trials are for second line or later patients ineligible for transplant. Uh, Roche's phase three trials are evaluating combinations with Stargo evaluating glufidumab in combination with Gemox chemotherapy and Senmo evaluating Lunsumio in combination with the antibody drug conjugate polyvi. Genmab and Avi are sticking to monotherapy for epcaritamab. Uh, for the current phase three trial. Um, Regeneron has ad announced additional trials for odronextamab uh, with standards of care, but without giving us any details. How do the bispecific antibodies compare to CAR-T in terms of efficacy and safety? So some important advantages that bispecific antibodies have over CAR-T therapy include that they are available off the shelf. Um, remember that currently available CAR-T therapies are all autologous, which means they are custom made. This means that patients have to wait for the therapy to may be made. Uh, manufacturing may not always be successful, and there has been some talk of difficulty in getting a manufacturing slot. Um, custom manufacturing also contributes to the high cost of CAR-T therapy. Another advantage of bispecific antibodies is that patients don't require lymphodepleting chemotherapy, which can be hard on the patients. In terms of safety, the incidence of CRS is pretty similar between the two types of therapy, but uh, biospecifics have slightly lower rates of neurotoxicity. With regards to infections, glufidumab has slightly lower rates of infection, while epcaritamab has even lower rates of infection. Of course, the big advantage of CAR-Ts is that they have been proven to lead to durable remissions in about 40% of patients. Time will tell just how durable remissions are with bispecific antibodies. It will also be interesting to see if a REMS program will be required for the new batch of bispecifics. Uh, Blincinto, the first approved bispecific, does not have a REMS program. 
with CAR-T therapy now approved for second-line transplant-eligible patients and with bispecifics set to be approved for the third-line or later setting, um, we expect bispecifics to be used in patients previously treated with CAR-T therapy or who cannot access CAR-T therapy. We'll have to wait for results from the confirmatory phase three trials to see um, how bispecifics will do in the second-line setting. And long-term data from two phase three trials, Elevate, TN and Ascend, for calquence use in first-line and relapsed and refractory CLL patients were presented. Flora, what do these updated data mean for calquence's growth in the BTKI market? Well, since its launch in 2019, Calquence has already been stealing considerable market share from standard of care BTKI and Bruvica, and that's both in the first line and second line and beyond settings. So with Bruvica use dominating that first line setting, uh, of course, we saw Calquence boast rapid uptake in the relapsed refractory setting, especially within the Bruvica intolerant population. However, where the drug still has much more potential for growth is in that frontline BTKI market. That being said, uh, at the end of 2021, uh, so just two years after its launch, Calquence had already captured about a third of the patient share in the first line BTKI market. Despite that growth, though, there is some resistance from clinicians to use a calibrutinib up front, and that's partly due to lack of long term data in comparison to ibrutinib. So, for example, Ibruvica just had eight year follow up data published from the phase three Resonate 2 trial. Uh, clinicians are comfortable with the long-term benefit of ibrutinib, and that's been a struggle for Calquence in that frontline setting. But now with these longer follow-up data from Elevate TN, we see the efficacy stands comparable to that of Ibruvica. So with the five-year overall survival estimates uh, from Elevate TN actually match those from the five-year follow-up of the Resonate 2 trial. We also saw that Calquence continues to be less toxic than Ibruvica, uh, for example, it has fewer reports of hypertension and atrial fibrillation, even in the five year follow ups. And that's obviously a real key differentiator for uh, Calquence. So I think the updated data from Elevate TN will help address this issue for clinicians and will most likely be influential in helping Calquence capture more patient share in the frontline BTKI market. There's also the anticipated approval of Brukinza next year. Um, and this is, of course, expected to enter the market as the best in class BTKI. It's displayed superior efficacy and tolerability uh, compared to Imbruvica in the RR setting. And although not investigated in a head to head trial with Calquence, it is believed to be uh, more tolerable. So whilst Calquence currently holds over half of that relapsed refractory BTKI market and is increasingly stealing patient share here, it now faces threat of competition from Brukinza. Having this long term data and more clinician familiarity will be a key advantage for Calquence against Brukinza. So the timing of these longer term follow up data from Ascend uh, will, of course, also work in favour for Calquence to fight off market share loss to Brukinza in the relapsed refractory BTKI setting, and uh, specifically in that in Bruvica intolerant population. You mentioned these results will help Calquence steal market share from Bruvica, but with Bruvica famed for its impressive efficacy in high-risk patients, do you think these updated data have any impact in this patient setting? So, yes, as you say, Bruvica does boast uh, long-term robust clinical evidence in high-risk patients, and there has been slightly a lack of this thus far for Calquence, uh, specifically in treatment-naive 
high risk patients. Uh, so the phase three Elevate RR trial investigated Calquent's head to head with Embrivacar in high risk relapsed refractory CLL patients. And this demonstrated Calquent's to be non-inferior in efficacy and superior as well in a few of the safety endpoints. So whilst the investigator of this trial did advocate for those results to be extrapolated to frontline treatment of this patient setting, clinician concerns have remained regarding the lack of data and of course lack of long-term data uh, compared to Imbruvacar. So because of this thus far, frontline use of Calquence for patients with high risk genetic factors has been rather limited. And the use it has seen um, is more so in younger patients with comorbidities, which predispose them to poor clinical outcome with imbrutinib and position them at a higher risk of TLS syndrome um, and hence are advised not to take Venclextra and Gaziva combination. So the updated results from Elevate TN and Ascend presented at ASCO 2022 actually reported a consistent PFS benefit across the high risk genetic subgroups. And that was including patients with deletion 17P and or TP53 mutation. So I think these subgroup analysis will be helpful in boosting Calquent's uptake in this patient population, uh, especially in that frontline setting, where, as I said, it previously lacked data for. The sample sizes of the subgroup analysis for high-risk patients were relatively small. Do you think this will hinder Calquent's uptake? Yes, so I think so. Only 14% of patients enrolled in Elevate TN had confirmed presence of deletion 17P and or mutated TP53, and then uh, only 17% in the ASCEND trial. So when you consider the robust evidence and familiarity with Imbruvica in this patient setting, I think in order to see a shift in use from Imbruvica to Calquence, it will probably need further evaluation in larger patient groups. And in fact, AstraZeneca are making strides towards this. So at the European Haematology Association annual meeting just last month, they presented a pooled analysis of all the clinical trial data from high risk patients enrolled in the Elevate TN, Elevate RR and Ascend trials. And uh, this included the data that was presented at ASCO. So this pooled analysis looks at 801 CLL patients with high risk genomic uh, features and has a minimum follow-up of at least four years. So this data again did support the use of Calquence based regimes in high-risk patients regardless of line of therapy. There's also a phase three trial investigating Calquence in combination with Venclexta and Gaziva for frontline treatment of high-risk CLL patients. So I think the bank of evidence is expanding and once we have results from uh, this phase three trial too, we will see a much bigger impact on Calquence growth in this patient setting. But um, I do believe the subgroup analysis results are probably from a too small of a sample. The Elevate TN trial investigates both Calquence monotherapy and Calquence and Gaziva combination regimen. Do you think these updated results will promote differential uptake of these regimens? That's a good question. So, so far, Calquence use has been reported predominantly as a monotherapy, uh, despite it also gaining approval for use in combination with Gaziva. I think hindrance 
to Calquence and Gaziva uptake with clinicians can partly be attributed to concerns regarding the lack of a clearly observed survival benefit, which is, of course, necessary to justify the additional toxicity which comes with a combination regime. Well, in these updated data from Elevate TN trial, the combination arm actually reduced the risk of disease progression or death 10% more than the Calquence monotherapy. Uh, the overall survival estimates were also higher in the combination arm. So on that front, yes, these data may work to combat the clinician's concerns regarding the benefit risk profile of the combination regime. However, there is the issue of anti-CD20 use whilst concerns regarding COVID-19 remain. So throughout the course of the pandemic, CD20 monoclonal antibodies saw a decline because of emergent evidence which indicated anti-CD20s to dampen vaccine effectiveness and increase the severity of COVID-19 infections. Added on top of this, of course, is also reluctance from patients developed to attend medical settings, uh, such as hospitals, which the Calquence and Gaziva combination regime requires and Calquence monotherapy does not. So although these updated results have displayed the combination regime to have a potential survival benefit, I think this is too slight to combat these concerns currently. And I think the uh, Calquence monotherapy will con continue to be favoured for now off the back of the COVID-19 pandemic. And long-awaited data from the phase three paradigm trial in first-line colorectal cancer patients were presented at ASCO. The trial compared two relatively old colorectal cancer drugs. What is the importance of the study and what did the data reveal, Donna? Um, yes, the phase three paradigm trial compared Pectibix in combination with Folfox uh, versus Vastin in combination with the same uh, chemotherapy Folfox as a first line treatment in patients with RAS, wild type, metastatic or rectal cancer. Um, most first line patients with RAS or BRAF wild type colorectal cancer are now treated with Avastin, but there's no consensus regarding the optimal choice of monoclonal antibody in this setting. So the paradigm trial set out to discover which one is best? Is it Vectibix or is it Avastin? The trial was the first prospective trial to test the superiority of Vectibix uh, versus Avastin. As I said, both in combination with standard chemotherapy. Um, the results were, were presented in the plenary session. They were long awaited as we knew Vectibix came on top, but we didn't actually know the, the numerical data. So it, but the data showed that indeed Vectibix led to a statistically significant OS improvement over Avastin. And that was in both left-sided primary tumour population as well as in the overall population. Um, so the left -sided, in the left-sided population, the median OS was 37.9 months versus 34.3 for Avastin. And overall, uh, we have 36.2 months for Vectibix versus 31.3 for Avastin. As you all know, OS is confounded by subsequent therapies, although post-progression systemic treatments were looked at and they were well balanced between the trial arms. However, the, the median PFS values observed in the paradigm trial uh, were actually not that different in the two arms. So this is likely to signal very little change in the current practice of prescribing Avastin. There were other issues with the trial as well. It only recruited Japanese patients. So although the, the study's authors showed and indicated that the results should not differ in the, in the general Western population, the applicability of the results 
may need to be, to be verified, but such a trial is costly, unlikely to be supported by, by Takeda, who was Paradigm's sponsor. Other issues raised were the choice of the chemotherapy added to Vectibix and Avastin, so they chose MCOL-FOX6, uh, but Folfiri is sometimes preferred to MFOX6 in the first line RAS wild type setting. So physicians could potentially question uh, whether the data would have looked different if uh, an Irina TCAN based chemotherapy versus an oxaliplatin based chemotherapy would, would have been chosen. Um, sidedness was not used as a stratification factor in the trial. So with the trial first designed to demonstrate Vectibix uh, is superior over Avastin in all RAS wild type patients, um, so not just the, the left-sided uh, ones, it actually remains to be seen whether the, the data presented will indeed be paradigm changing. And what do you think will be the impact in the clinic? It's hard to say. Physicians uh, may make the switch from Avastin to, to Vectibix, but speaking to, to KOLs, it doesn't seem like they were that convinced by the, by the data, especially the, the MPFS values being the same in both arms. It may not be enough to, to switch, to make them switch from Avastin to, to Vectibix. And another impactful presentation at ASCO was that of the notable trial, which tested EGFR targeting monoclonal antibody nimotuzumab in pancreatic cancer. What did you think of the data? Yeah, so this one was an interesting one. Uh, pancreatic cancer patients have a dire outlook. The typical median OS uh, ranges between six and eight months. And KRAS status is not routinely assessed in, in, uh, in pancreatic cancer patients at the moment, but it is increasingly recognized as, a, as an important biomarker for, for the indication. So the, the notable trial was a relatively small one in uh, less than 100 patients. They were all Chinese and they, were, they uh, had KRAS wild type of pancreatic cancer. So KRAS wild type represents approximately 10% of the, the pancreatic cancer patients. Uh, nemotizumab um, was, was tested in combination with gemcitabine. And in, in fact, it led to an improvement in, in both uh, median OS and PFS compared to gemcitabine alone. So the data looked quite impressive. The, the median OS uh, shown 10.9 months for nemotizumab versus 8.5 months for gemcitabine alone. And the uh, median PFS was 4.2 months versus 3.6 for gemcitabine. Uh, what was notable was that the Kaplan-Meier curves that were presented in the, in the session showed a late separation. So they were joined at the beginning and then they, they separated later on. Um, so this could potentially indicate certain patient subgroups that respond differently to nemotizumab gemcitabine. So it's worth investigating what these subgroups are and whether uh, nemotizumab could actually lead to even better results if these patients are identified. Gemcitabine is not the first line standard of care in locally advanced metastatic pancreatic cancer patients. So 
a larger trial uh, that would include Western patients and it would assess nimotizumab combined with other chemotherapies that are the standard of care, such as gemcitabine and paclitaxel, would actually be needed to, uh, to demonstrate uh, the, the agent's promise in the, in the indication. And of course, it would increase the agent's future chances of regulatory success. And that concludes our June edition of Pharma Intelligence's podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening.